My opening question this morning as I read that gospel passage is this. It's a question I'm asking of myself and of you. Are you a good prayer? Not a prayer, a good prayer. And by that I mean, I don't mean, do you pray a lot? I mean, do you pray well? Are you good at prayer? Are your prayers the kind that are taught in Scripture? Do you pray like Jesus teaches? I've come to the conclusion that one of my, my main life's works is to grow in prayer, become better at prayer, to learn how to pray well. And I realize it's a slow burn. It's going to take a long time to get there. If you've, if you've read any of the statistics, and they keep doing these surveys of the religious scene in America, um, the number is like four out of every five Americans supposedly prays at least once a week. And I don't think this is good. I don't think this is bad. I think this simply tells us something that we already know, and that is that people are spiritual, that we were made as spiritual people who are in search of God. We are seeking him. We are made to seek him. And the question I have is, how are they praying? What are they, who do they pray to? Are they praying well, or are they just praying because they're spiritual beings? Jesus, in his teaching, in a number of places, denounces certain types of prayer. For instance, he says of the Pharisees, don't pray like them. They go into the marketplaces and they stand up and they make these speeches to impress others. Don't pray like they pray. Don't pray like the Gentiles. They heap up words thinking they'll be heard because of the magnitude of their words. They're not praying with their minds and with faith. They're just saying a whole lot of stuff. Don't pray like that. So he gives some places where he says, this is not good prayer. And then other places where he says, this is how you should pray and teaches prayer. And I think it's interesting that the, the Jewish men who came along as his disciples, who were taught how to pray from childhood, looked at Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, Lord, realizing that he prayed in a way that was different than how they were praying. And they wanted to learn from him how to pray. So what I decided to do for this Sunday and the next two weeks is a very short three-week series on prayer. We're not going to exhaust it. We're not even going to come close to hitting all the things about prayer that we could do. This is something we will continue to come back to over and over again. And we have a prayer ministry in our church, and there are opportunities for further training in prayer here. But I wanted to take three weeks and do a prayer series called Learning to Breathe. And I like that metaphor of all the others for prayer. Breathing is a really good metaphor because breathing is necessary for life, and it's moment by moment. You can go without water for about three days. You can go without air for about three minutes. And for the Christian, prayer is that essential. So I thought learning to breathe is a good, a good metaphor, a good title for this, um, this preaching series. So today I'm going to look at persistent prayer. Next week I'm going to look at expectant prayer. And then the third week, John Schuler will be here and he's going to preach to us on listening prayer. So today, persistent prayer. We've got this parable and I love that, the, that Luke, who recorded the parable, uh, tells us the interpretation right at the front end. He just makes it a little easier for us. Jesus told this parable so that people, it tells us right there in verse 1, so that people would always pray and not lose heart. Thank you, Luke, for giving that to us, because this could be taken in a number of ways that are not as helpful. Always pray and not lose heart. But even with it saying that, there are some things that you could take away from this that are not helpful, that are incorrect. Is Jesus teaching us here to just nag God until we get what we want? Because you could take it that way. And I don't think that's what he's teaching, but 
you could, you know, start praying, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> I mean, you could really pray like that. My daughter, when she was five, I think, um, really wanted a dog, and she wore me down. Every morning, she wouldn't speak until I acknowledged that she was a dog. Bark, 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 bark. Did you sleep well? Bark, bark, bark. Go brush your teeth. Bark, bark. Good dog. And then she would speak to me in English. She did that for about six months and finally just wore me down. And we finally got her a dog, which we still have eight years later. I don't think this parable is trying to teach us to just go with your wants and keep wearing and grinding on God. But it does teach persistence. And I think the key word in this parable is justice. The widow comes to the judge and says, grant me justice against my adversary. What is that? What is she asking for? To step out of the parable, what does it mean for us? Justice is about God putting things right, the way they're supposed to be. And the adversary, we have three adversaries, actually. And last week, in the baptism service, we were reminded of what those three adversaries are. The world, the devil, and the sin in us that still is resident there. Those are the three adversaries. And so when we are praying for God to bring justice, we are basically praying what he taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done, your kingdom come. Help us, Lord, in these three areas. That, that helps us, I think, one, to see bigger than just, I want a Mercedes-Benz, Lord, give, give me my desire. I want to win a million bucks in the lottery, whatever. We, instead of just bringing my desires, we say, put things right the way they're supposed to be. I know we will benefit if God, and when God puts things right. I do know that. But we don't go from self-interest, we go from a bigger perspective to the judge of the universe and we say, give justice against our adversaries. The other thing that's important to recognize in this is context. You've heard me say that a hundred times, probably literally a hundred times, I'll bet. But context matters. And we usually read the Bible in little passages, little devotional readings. But if you read chapter 17 and then 18, you see that the context here is Jesus was teaching about when his kingdom would come. And the Pharisees, who knew he claimed to be the king bringing a new kingdom, they were asking him questions about that kingdom. When is it going to come? What's it going to be like? How will we spot it? And he turns from answering them to speaking to his disciples, and he says, don't run after people who say, here it is or there it is. The Son of Man is going to suffer and be rejected by this generation, and he will return. You won't miss it. In the same way that lightning lights up the entire sky, you're not going to miss the Son of Man when he comes. And then he tells this parable, and so that we would not give up if it seems to take a while for him to come back. And at the end of the parable, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? So the context is waiting. The context is what scholars call the already but not yet. Christ has already defeated sin and death and Satan, but he has not yet put away from us the presence of evil and the presence of sin. He has broken its power, but is very much still in our midst. And we know it. We experience it. The world, the flesh, the devil. We, uh, the clergy and some of the vestry were up in Atlanta this weekend on Friday and Saturday for the Synod. And we heard a number of presentations. And I'm thinking about the world situation here. One man, a man named Cameron, was describing a situation in the world that made me crawl when I thought about it. My skin crawled when I thought about it. But he described the way that a certain uh, city determines how many jail cells they'll need. They look at the fourth grade reading level. Seriously, 
They look at the fourth grade reading level, and if they're not reading well or up to whatever the standard is, they can look at how many kids are failing at reading, and they can make that many jail cells. Or There's some relation there. And I thought, that is sick. That is a broken system. The whole system is, is bad. And like, you, you hear that stuff, and you cringe. Like, what do we do with that? Are you burdened for justice, saying to, to God, give us justice? We can't easily fix this on our own. There, there are things that are so endemic to the system that that's the result. And we see it and we, we go, ah. Another one was in Ethiopia, a ministry there where they were talking just about public health. In a certain town, the average woman has eight to 10 pregnancies in her life, but the average birth rate was two to four people per, or not birth, but survival rate. So it, it was from basic sanitation. Now, that was something that, that the Anglican Relief and Development Fund was making huge strides in and had reversed that. And now they were eight to 10 pregnancies, eight to 10 babies. But that's a problem and that's a world thing. God, give us justice, we pray. We go and we ask for help and then we work where we can. How about the flesh? You know, I've walked with the Lord a long time and I still see desires creep up in me that are not good. And I go, ah, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord. I hate it. I hate that this is in there, and it grieves me. Where did that thought come from? I know where it came from. It came from me as a sinful, broken person. We, we struggle against that. And then the devil. You know, every once in a while, something bad happens that is so bad, you go, that's not the usual human heart there. You know, that, sh- that shooting in Charleston, that was bigger than just a man who's been wounded. That was evil getting a hold of something and doing great damage. And we look and we go, there is a devil and he is on the loose and he's doing damage. And we cry out, God, have mercy, help us. Give us justice against the adversary. And it should move us to pray. But do you have a prayer burden? Do you hear those things? And are, is your immediate response to cry out to God persistently, God, heal our land, heal our hearts, stop this, stop the enemy. It should move us to prayer. It should burden us. We're vulnerable. In this parable, we're supposed to identify with the widow. Widows were very vulnerable, and she goes alone to a judge with nothing except her persistence and just keeps asking and keeps asking. And that's who we are. As God's people in the world, we are vulnerable because we don't belong to this kingdom. We don't belong to this world anymore if you're a Christian. Your citizenship is elsewhere, and the world rejects you in many different ways. Now, some people give up on prayer. They get frustrated. It takes a while, so they start doubting God's goodness. They get frustrated with that, the lack of results. They pray for something they think is definitely God's will, and it doesn't come. And they, they stop praying. They give up. They get frustrated. The long delays wear them down. Maybe that's you. Some figure, why pray? I'm just going to go fix it. And they try to do things in their own strength, but these problems are bigger than us. They're going to require, it's, it's a God-sized problem. It's going to require him to solve these things. He has to do it. But we have a role in that. We have a role as people who intercede, people who come and ask God to do this. It's, there's a mystery here as to why God has allotted a certain amount of prayer for us to go before him with, but he has. We have a part in the solution, which is praying. Now, let's look at the parable specifically. The the parable expects us to both compare and contrast. I think it's fascinating. It's just, once again, an example of Jesus as a great teacher, that he would compare an unrighteous judge to God. Right there, he's got his hearer's attention, right? Did he just compare an unrighteous judge to God? 
What do we do with that? Well, we compare certain things and we contrast certain things. And what's important, and he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. The widow gets justice. She, in the end, gets what is right. So that's a good thing. Through this persistent going to him, he finally grants her justice. She gets what she wanted. So that's good. Verse 7, he says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In the Greek, it's a double emphatic not. There's two words in Greek. It's, it, it makes it very strong. It's a rhetorical question, of course, but it is saying God will give justice to his elect who cry out day and night. He's not like the unjust judge. He's even better. He's good. So now let's look at some of the contrasts here. Okay, so we've got one, we have a widow who's a stranger to this judge. She doesn't know him personally. There's no relationship there. She's just another widow in his jurisdiction, and here she comes. After a while, they've got a relationship because, you know, oh, here she comes again, and he tries to get busy with something, and she, you know, they, he, start, he, knew, he knows her by first name by the time he grants justice. But there's no family connection. It's not like she's going in saying, hey, uncle, you know, so-and-so, help me out here. But consider our situation. We have a heavenly father. We are his children, his sons and daughters. And, we, and he's, Jesus is saying, go to him asking for justice. He's the judge, and you are related to him. How different it is when you know somebody in the justice system personally. You get specialized treatment, right? That's what he's saying here. Another contrast is this. The judge is not just, as I said. He's an unrighteous judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. He doesn't care. He's going to do what he wants to do. And that's not the case of God. God is just. But not only that, he's merciful. And he's gracious. You know, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. So if you want to see those three things, you look at the cross. Justice is sin is dealt with there. So mercy is Jesus is on that cross, not me. Justice would be me on that cross. But in mercy, he steps in. And that's grace. It's an undeserved gift. It's getting something I don't deserve. And, it's not, and mercy is not getting something I do deserve. God is all three of those things. He's just, and he's merciful, and he's graceful. How different that is from the unrighteous judge. Another comparison, or contrast rather, The widow has no advocate. She doesn't have a rich team of lawyers who are working the law, who are lobbying for her. She goes alone as an individual and a woman in a very male-dominated society against the power. It's one individual with no advocate. Consider our situation. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he stands there interceding, sitting next to the Father on our behalf. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Remember what I did on the cross. Forgive their sins. Help them. He, he intercedes, as does the Holy Spirit, on our behalf with groanings, it says in Romans 8, that we can't even understand. God is praying for us. The work of intercession is Jesus' work primarily. We come behind with our weak intercessions in comparison, but Jesus is our advocate with the Father, and he's righteous. And then, and then a final one. She risks irritating that judge right? She could have just irritated him so much that he put her in jail just for, you know, disturbing the court or some trumped up charge. He just gets frustrated and he could, he could deal with her a number of ways. That's a real risk that she has. But in prayer for us, we don't have that risk. 
Instead, we have a heavenly father who delights when we come to him and ask for things. It actually pleases him when we pray, and it displeases him when we don't. He's commanding us to pray here. God's mercy is seen in small things. So don't give up if it's a, it seems like it's slow in coming. It's a long time in coming. It's, it, God will, in the small details along the way, bring us blessings and mercy, and then occasionally he'll break through in a very big way, and we get to see that sometimes. Sometimes it takes a lifetime, and we don't get to see what we're asking for, but he still wants us to keep praying. Let me give you an example of just a small mercy that I experienced in prayer just uh, last, this past week. And, you know, we should pray for big things and small things. And I think this is in line with God's will. I was praying about our personal finances as a household. We make our, our budget. We set aside what we should for the kingdom. We ask God for help. We, like most people, struggle to make the budget. And we, I was just frustrated because it was, the numbers on paper said one thing, and I kept coming up short every month. And I went, I decided you know, fool that I am. I waited a long time, but I finally decided, how about I pray about this? God, every two weeks, you know, when I get paid every two weeks, I'm going to sit down and do bills, you know, and I already, I dread it because I'm like, I'm going to go away frustrated. We didn't hit the benchmark of savings or what we wanted to do. I'm going to pray about it this time and say, God, I would like some encouragement, just some breakthrough this time in paying bills. Do you know what happened? I realized that our Comcast bill was more than it should be. So I call Comcast ready for a fight. You know, I'm like, you know, thinking through my angles. I'm thinking if I threaten to cancel, am I willing to go with DSL or not? You know, you know we all play this game, right? I get on the phone and, I, and the very nice woman answers and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, and uh, how can I help you? And I say, well, I'm not happy with how much my bill is. And I'm paying for this high-speed extra something or other. I didn't notice any change when I went to high-speed. Um, and then she takes over and says, well, hang on a second. Let me look at your bill. What do you guys use the internet for? What do you watch on TV? Do you watch much TV? And she starts asking me all these questions. I thought, oh, she's building her case now <laughs> against me. And, and that's not what happened. She said, well, you know, I see here that you, on your bill, you're paying $10 a month for a modem rental, but it says you own your modem. And I said, I do? And she said, yeah. And I went, oh, I think I remember back in February something happened and I was upset about the bill and I guess I bought my modem and didn't realize it. And she said, yeah, so we owe you money. Hang on a second. I went, what? <laughs> she goes, well, it was back in February, so I'm going to credit you back 70 bucks to your account. And she goes, and I'm going to give you a $49.99 deal instead of the $69.99 deal, and this will be good for 12 months. And let's keep you on the high speed thing because I do think it makes a difference. You just haven't noticed it. And I said, okay. I'm like... And I said, how about that late fee? Uh, ten, yeah, we'll take that off too. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I just, I, I was like, why can't you believe it? You prayed and asked God for some encouragement, and this is what happened. But all of us know that's not what happen, happens typically when you call the cable company. But it was a small token for me heading into a three-week series preaching on prayer that prayer is powerful. It works, you know? And it, it wasn't, it was... My, it wasn't just saying, I want something. Give me a Mercedes Benz. It was saying, God, I'm frustrated. I'm trying to be faithful, and I, and I feel like we keep stumbling. What's, what's the deal? Help me with this. And he did. He stepped in. We see this in a number of ways. We see it in people's lives. We see it in our lives if we look for it, and we see it in the scriptures. Consider something else from Revelation. I think this is a fascinating passage. This is in Revelation 6, and I know this is apocalyptic in its, in its imagery, but this is the opening of the, scroll, the scrolls, the seals, rather. It, it says, um, 
When I, this is, let me back up. This is John the Apostle, and he is describing a vision that the Holy Spirit has given him, a picture of the heavenly perspective of things. And there are these seals being opened. And it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These are people martyred for the faith who are waiting for God to come and bring justice. Give us justice against our adversary. God says vengeance is mine, but their work is to cry out for it. God, would you avenge? Would you come and fix the situation? Would you put things that are wrong right? And he gives a little mercy and he says, here, white robe, just wait a little longer. I'm doing something else, something bigger. You'll see, just wait a little longer. And so along the way, he gives us encouragement, little mercy saying, just keep praying, just wait a little longer. I'm doing something big. And we come down to the very end of this parable and Jesus asks a rhetorical question. When the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a rhetorical question. He might as well have said, I'm coming back and I want to find you praying faithfully. Sometimes it's helpful to put it in an explicit command. Pray faithfully. I am coming back. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. He wants us to pray. He wants us to intercede. He delights when we do. May we be the kind of people who don't give up and lose heart. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, you are holy and you are good. We ask for your will in our lives. We ask for your kingdom to break in, in our church, in our families, in our work, in our broader community. We ask you to give us what we need, our daily needs, food, clothing, shelter, friendship, transportation, work to do, jobs. We ask you to forgive us as well in the same way that we forgive other people. And we pray that you would lead us so that we wouldn't fall when temptation comes, but be strengthened by it. We ask you, Lord, to deliver us from the evil one. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.